You are listening to the Mother Good Podcast, episode number 53. I'm your host, Emily Carney. We at Mother Good believe that there's no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. Our content is judgment-free within the context of evidence-based research. Welcome to another episode of the Mother Good Podcast. I'm so excited to have Leah Labresco Sargent on. She's the author of Arriving at Amen and Building the Benedict Option. So Leah, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Well, I'm so excited to have you on because in the past few years of my adult life, I have really started to consider myself more a feminist, even though I never thought that that's something that I would consider myself as. I know that it tends to have a lot of negative connotations, uh, but I know that when you just look at kind of an objective definition uh, in dictionaries or even encyclopedias such as Britannica, that Britannica defines feminism as the belief in social, economic, and political equality of the sexes, which seems like a pretty benign uh, statement and something that everyone should really get behind. Uh, but I've been really enjoying your emails and substacks that you've been having on what you consider other feminism. Uh, so I'd really love to divide up our conversation today first by digging into what you consider this other kind of feminism is. And secondly, feminism and motherhood, and then finally about raising feminists. So uh, what, in your opinion, is this, some, this kind of other feminist? I think it's advocating for women as women. And I think that's been part of the historical tradition of feminism for a long time. It can be easy to discount the importance of the movement because we get secure in the victories it's won. But you know, it's not so long ago it was perfectly legal to fire a woman for being pregnant. And those victories mean a lot. And they've been so important that we've all founded our lives on them and then forget how recently those fights happened. I think some of the tension today about, you know, who owns the feminist movement, what is it advocating for, comes down to this question of advocating for women as women. And I view that as distinct from advocating for women as deficient men who need a little help to basically pass for men. And I see that deficient men attitude when people say, you know, what, what we need for feminism is we need for women to be able to have sex like men without consequences. Ignoring the fact that there aren't no consequences for men, they're just better at hiding from them. But that sense that, well, the world expects everyone to reliably be not pregnant. So for women to exist in the world, they have to be able to be not pregnant for as long as possible. And if they are pregnant, it's a mistake, and you have to be able to roll it back magically so that that didn't happen, because we don't live in a world that's friendly to pregnant people. But as long as women aren't pregnant, then they can be people. <laughs> that's so true. I really like what you said in one of your emails that you sent out, out that, you know, for most people... Um, that they want to advocate for women as women, just as you said, and that our equality is often premised on remaking ourselves to be more like the medium man. And I really like too, how you brought up that, the, you know, the different needs that breastfe breastfeeding demands and, you know, whether or not it's pregnancy and needing more breaks or those sorts of things. And that's, those are things that you really don't find in the workforce and everything's just more, accommodating to men. I mean, even just starting this podcast, I know that that you were running a little late because you're uh, feeding your baby. And, you know, that's something that you can't really do in the regular workforce. It's I mean, I understand because I 
I was kind of worried that I might have to breastfeed right when this episode is starting to, you know, that there's that whole debate. Do I wake the baby? Is he going to sleep? And, or is he going to wake up in the middle of the podcast or whatever? And then obviously like I'm recording in the nursery right now <laughs> because my husband's using the office. So just things like that, uh, that you really don't find in, in the regular workforce uh, because they, they want us to think that it's a man's world basically. So and I think there's been some progress amid the pandemic just because we can't go on the way we did. You know, some employers and employees are finding out, you know, like it doesn't actually matter that much whether everyone's in the office at these times constantly. You know, there are other ways to make sure you keep up with your colleagues. There are ways to work around disruptions once everyone has to. And my hope is that, you know, first that God willing, we'll all be vaccinated by summer. And then second, <laughs> That when we go back, we won't go back to things just the way they were, but a more humane structuring of work that keeps in mind that people have lives outside their jobs. And if you build a job around the presumption of, I only want to hire people who don't have lives outside their job, you are saying, I don't want to hire many women. That That's definitely a great point. I remember one employer that I had and uh, that they were really against people working remotely. And obviously that that tends to be something that really is helpful for women because then they have more flexibility. Uh, and I've, you know, during this pandemic, a few times I thought, oh, I wonder how they're doing now or if this pandemic has changed the way they think uh, since they were so against it before. But I, just as you mentioned, I have read a lot of articles stating that employers have found that productivity has increased and that it doesn't really matter whether or not people are in the office and they can save on things like uh, lease an office space, leasing um, office buildings, basically. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit too about uh, women being left out of medicine and how this fits into the definition of feminism. I really liked uh, your email and discussion on this. And I, I know that you mentioned that uh, women are left out of uh, medicine because it tends to be male-centered. And I have a lot of friends who are in the healthcare profession and that they've even told me that, you know, most most medicines aren't really tested on men. And we already know that most aren't tested on pregnant and lactating women, those sorts of things. And even the whole uh, human anatomy that's taught in medical schools, all based on a man's body. Uh, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that and why you think that that's important part of feminism in this, uh, this definition of feminism that you've laid out. Yeah, a huge part of the problem is taking men as the standard and then saying, and then we'll cover just the bits of women that are different. It's too bad. You know, it'd be nicer if we just had one model, but we'll just do the man as standard. And then we'll cover the women's reproductive system, which is like the one non-male part of a woman. But the rest is male, basically, you know, so it's fine. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's crazy. Uh, you know, it's crazy yeah. at a lot of levels. So let's just start at kind of medical dosing levels, which is that whenever you take medicine, the amount you take varies based on how big you are in that, you know, varies broadly across people. So obviously, a very skinny man may find himself kind of feeling like the dose he has isn't quite correct for him if it's calibrated towards a median guy. But the problem is even more exacerbated for women, and not just because of our size compared to men, but because of our metabolisms and our hormonal cycles, which are distinct. You know, it's not just the uterus that makes us different from men. It's not just, you know, a piece of anatomy. 
But not only are these not taken into account, they're not even measured because women who are experiencing their natural cycles are usually excluded from clinical trials, both because there's the concern they might become pregnant and either you know, need to or want to drop out of the study, but also because you know the people who make different kinds of drugs and medicines say, well, the medicine could interact with the cycle and that would throw off the data. So we want to only interact with women who are on hormonal contraception, who are having kind of a more mm -hmm. static level of hormones. But of course, that means your data doesn't reflect women. It doesn't reflect most women right. as they are. It's like, well, I'm trying out these drugs, you know, you know, they're intended eventually for, you know, kids in elementary school, but it's tricky to run clinical trials for them. So I'm doing them on chimpanzees. And you're like, well, that's a first approximation. Like, and it's basically the same thing. And I'm like, well, no, it isn't. Like, I understand. Now I'm trying it on very short people who are basically children. You're like, no, no, in, in no way is that a reasonable comparison. And here we have half the human race where we're basically treated as either so equivalent to men, we don't need to be included, or so divergent that it's too troublesome to test and make recommendations. Both insane. <laughs> right. I know it's so annoying when, whenever you're pregnant or breastfeeding, whenever you look at the warning labels on basically everything, I feel like they just slap on that warning label that says, warning, if you're pregnant or nursing, consult with your doctor or whatever. And, and then the silly thing about that is just, just as you were saying that most research out there doesn't even back it up. So even if you did consult with your doctor, it's not like they could even give you an evidence-based answer, you know, they're just going to give you some anecdotal based on their anecdata, basically, from all of their patients and what they have told them about different sorts of things. So it is, it is super annoying. And then in your email, I know that you even brought up the fact of the COVID vaccination, which I would love for you to talk a little bit about that, too, because I know it, it can get a little controversial, uh, but I really love how you laid it out. So um, if you could get into that a little bit. I think the most basic thing is that women facing the choice of whether to take the vaccine, and I'm definitely doing it myself, deserve reliable data on how it will affect them to answer their questions. And that means including women in the studies. And it means including pregnant and nursing women in the studies. First, because we have simply no reason to expect the vaccines are you know, more dangerous to pregnant or nursing women or babies than they are to anyone else. So there's no reason for heightened concern here going in. There's also kind of balancing the fact that we know that COVID itself is particularly dangerous to pregnant women. They're in a higher risk category than the average person, therefore stand more to benefit from knowing how, whether the vaccine protects them and what side effects, if any, they experience. And so, you know, people were left out of studies. And then the initial recommendations often were, well, we didn't gather the data. So probably the most prudent thing is don't do it, you know? And you're like, well, you know, on the basis of like, if there could be a risk, you know, okay, right. but I can't weigh risk in a vacuum. It's not on the one hand, we don't know everything because you chose not to learn something about the vaccine, but on the other hand is zero risk. On the other hand, is it dangerous pandemic. And this is the choice that keeps getting pushed on to women often, especially during pregnancy. The idea that it's women's job to bring risks down to zero, as though there aren't trade-offs every time we make a choice. I love Dr. I love uh, Emily Oster's Expecting Better on Pregnancy, which really takes the point of view that women and babies are both people. 
And that when medicine serves us, it has to serve both at the same time. And some of these recommendations, you know, just kind of take the view that we don't have to look into kind of the trade-offs of various medicines because the smallest risk is no medicine, just to make sure nothing happens to the baby. And then when I have friends who suffer from depression and are facing the question of, is this antidepressant safe to continue during pregnancy? There's very little data. You know, and doctors who say basically, well, it's hard to know. We don't know what effect it has on the baby. We haven't looked into it at all. We've chosen not to. So you have to make the choice. But of course, you know, you want to make sure that nothing is dangerous for your baby. And the poor woman's left there saying, like, okay, so the medicine might be bad for my baby, but depression is also bad for me and my baby. And the baby. I, <laughs> yeah. They're like, what if you tried just not being on the medicine, but also not being depressed? And you're like, <laughs> interesting, interesting proposal there. And you just see, yeah, and people, women aren't taken seriously. You know, if you thought the problem mattered, if you thought women's health mattered, that would never be the recommendation you gave. Exactly. And then people wonder why moms are so hyper stressed about everything, right? With that extra burden on them, because really leaving women and mothers out of studies, it really puts the burden back on the woman to make that decision in a vacuum, just as you were saying. And I think that's also how people land on the heuristic of, you know, I guess the the morally correct choice is whichever one is harder for me, because I'm willing to sacrifice for my baby. So I must be that I have to be willing to take on anything. And that's not fair to women. You're willing to sacrifice for your baby, but that doesn't mean every sacrifice is a prudent or worthwhile one. And sometimes when these bad choices are forced on you, you know, the answer is to shove those bad choices back in the face of someone who told you they were your only options. <laughs> I really like that a lot. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this this point that we're talking about defining other feminism, that I never really considered myself a feminist all growing up, even though I'm the oldest of four sisters. So you would think that the fact that I, you know, of one of, of one of four sisters would kind of make me that. But I think I always did have that kind of like that negative connotation surrounding what the word feminist means. And that's why I really like your defin definition of it. But uh, getting back to the medical aspect is uh, one ex this a big experience in my life actually in the medical area did push me to having more of these feminist beliefs because uh, and I know I mentioned this a lot on my podcast but after the birth of my daughter uh, my first child that I was just extremely disappointed in the support and the medical care that I received postpartum, and then also just the lack of medical research surrounding pregnant and postpartum women, as we've been discussing, because I had this pelvic injury. And I know I've all my listeners are probably, um, you know, super annoyed at me uh, talking about this, or, uh, you know, they just heard it so many times. But when I bring this up again, only to mention that when I was looking at possible research on what can help what could help heal the pelvic condition that I had. Uh, it's funny because one of the biggest studies that I came across was research on male athletes who had this injury, even though it was extremely rare for uh, male athletes to get this condition, 
whereas it's a lot more common in women, but they had only really studied it in men. And so I really didn't have any evidence-based solution for it. Uh, and I don't know, maybe someone, obviously I don't have access to medical um, subscriptions where you can look at all these studies. So that's just basically what I found on Google. So maybe there is something, if someone's out there listening, maybe you could send it my way, but I haven't come across it and no healthcare provider that I've been to is aware of really any city surrounding it. Uh, and you shouldn't have to have a part-time job of doing medical research you know, that your doctor doesn't know the answer to to get basic care after you have a baby. That's such a good point. I, I do feel like it did become, uh, you know, basically a part-time job and then a hobby just to research different things. And then I'm always just constantly learning little things about how to help me since I'm, I'm going to physical therapy now, even after the birth of my second child for the same condition. And my public uh my public floor physical therapist, she just mentioned like, oh, try sleeping on your back. And I started doing that. And it's crazy. I was in so much pain. And until she started saying that, I I noticed a night and day difference just to sleep on my back. And I thought, oh, I wish someone would have told me that like three years ago. And then I'm just having to go from each provider, provider, and then cherry pick their their knowledge that's just gleaned from anecdata because there's no real research. (laughs) Well, what there is research on, you know, is that women's pain isn't taken seriously by many doctors, not every doctor, but in the aggregate, women's pain isn't treated as a medical problem needing attention or research. It's treated as a problem about the woman. So women and men who go into hospitals, you can look up this study with similar uh, symptoms and similar physical presentations. The men are more likely, even reporting the same degree of pain, to get pain medication and to get heard out by a doctor. And the women are more likely to be told that they might need anti-anxiety medication, with the assumption being that when a woman says she's in pain, she's saying something about how she's upset not that she might be in <laughs> literal physical pain that requires a physical response. Wow, that that's incredible in a in a bad way. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I think also that's crazy. also just women expect that we have to suffer for a long time before we deserve attention in part because we get rebuffed. So a friend of mine mm-hmm. had a C-section, you know, and I've been talking to her a bit about how the recovery is tough because I had one too. And it wasn't until we were like, oh, yeah, it's pretty hard. Yeah, it took me a while to get back to normal things. You're like, yeah, I was in unremitting pain for four months. I'm like, that's not normal. You know, that's wow. that's a problem. And she didn't know because everyone talks about how hard it is to have a baby and how recovery is difficult. Mm-hmm. And her doctor really didn't ask the follow-up questions when you say, are you having a hard time? Like, well, a bit. But it's easy to think, yeah, it's just hard to be a woman. And if, you know, it were you know, possible to not be in pain constantly for four months, someone would have told me, you know, someone would have taken it seriously. But we all know it's just it's hard to have a baby. And it's my job to push through. And I felt so bad for her. And frankly, I wanted to you know, go shake her doctor, because clearly, yeah, he hadn't been interested in how she was actually doing. Yeah, that that just reminds me of when I had my Post first postpartum visit after the birth of my daughter, uh, it was the same kind of thing that I was in excruciating pain. And I thought that that was normal too. And then I had to really push back. And then another provider that I went to shortly thereafter, who was a specialist, uh, he alluded to it being in my head because he kept on referencing 
me needing to gain, gain my confidence back. That's how he referred to my pain, gaining my confidence, go to physical therapy to gain your confidence back. And then it bugged me so much. I was just thinking this isn't about confidence. This is about pain. And I, I don't know if part of it too has to do with um, kind of like the, you know, kind of glorifying uh birth because I know there's this big movement and I completely respect women who choose not to have any drugs during their birthing process. You know, I think that that's incredible that women can do that. At at the same time, it seems like that there's shame surrounding women who do choose to have drugs and who do not want to experience all of that pain. And then people tend to over glorify the whole birthing process when you don't have the pain meds. And I, I just find that a little strange. I, I don't really understand that. Well, you know what? I agree with you. And I I almost had a natural childbirth in that sense. Um, <laughs> I have was, you know, no pain meds, you know, up through an hour and 15 minutes of pushing. And then my baby was in trouble. So I needed an emergency C-section. But, you know, an unmedicated childbirth isn't a, I'm just gung-ho for pain childbirth, like everything about planning for that was about pain management. It was about, you know, who's going to be in the room. I want to deliver with midwives who are providing care for me through all of labor, not with a doctor who's going to just swoop in at the end to catch the baby. Uh, I want to like have a doula there and my husband who are both thinking about how can I move around? What can make me feel more comfortable? I want to talk about if those things don't work, what other options are on the table? But, you know, a natural childbirth isn't a childbirth like totally alone or that I'm, you know, you know beasting out in some way, right? <laughs> right. It's about, yeah, that's a good, what do I need to be able to depend on? And often women don't have any of those things available or the only kind of support available is an epidural, not like a compassionate person taking care of you the whole time. Women should have both options on the table. Exactly. That's a really good point that you make. There is shame on both extremes that I've noticed that um, one OB that I went to before I switched providers was all about epidurals, but kind of uh, not looking down on people who didn't have epidurals, but she kind of laughed at people who didn't have epidurals. So not respecting the woman's choice to not have one. So that's the one extreme, you know, that the, the providers are just thinking, okay, come on, just get the epidural. And just as you were saying, not respecting someone who has to go through the whole process and have more, uh, you know, basically someone there at their side to kind of coach them through it and, and work through those the pain and everything. And then on the flip side, then there's this whole uh, more natural birthing community that then looks down on women who don't have the natural. So yeah, it, I guess that that's another big aspect of just women uh, in healthcare kind of just getting judged and stuck and not really being respected for their wishes. And not getting the uh, credit for what we're doing, right? I like talking about labor because who delivers the baby? Mostly the woman, right? Um, but but if you <laughs> treat so the true. woman again as the problem in the middle of a childbirth, like, okay, the baby is coming, you know, the baby has agency, the doctor has agency, epidural or no, medicine or no, do you talk about the woman as the active participant doing the work and making choices? Or do you talk ab- about her as though she's someone for the doctor to manage and operate like a machine so that the doctor and the baby are doing the whole birth, which no disrespect to my baby, who indeed helped, right? But I, right. I think there's that tendency, again, to not talk about women as women, to not talk about mm-hmm. our really specific and hard-to-ignore role in giving birth to babies. And the way the language in either mode can minimize the agency and work of the woman 
in favor of, you know, either it's all instinct, you know, but not really something you're working on and doing, or it's the doctor's job to manage you. They're all pretty disrespectful and they set women up to be ignored or talked over, you know, starting during the labor and then as you experienced mm-hmm. afterwards as you deal with the after effects. Right. Well, I think that that's one reason why the whole concept of midwives is really coming back. It seems like and there's a really big appeal to having a midwife because they do respect the woman as a process. I know that I have one friend who gave birth with a midwife and the midwife was there with uh, my friend during the entire labor. And that was incredible and really coached her through uh, the whole birthing process so that she was able to have a back instead of just just as you were saying with the OB coming in at the at the very end just to kind of catch the baby, which which is basically what I had. <laughs> so I'd love to move into uh, the second point now, and that's talking about um, feminism and motherhood. I know that we've mentioned before uh, on this podcast is that, you know, we at Motherhood believe that being a mother means choosing to be a mother. And that's also means that we don't promote abortion and that we really think that um, motherhood means that you choose to be a mother, you know, and I really like what you said in one of your emails that, that mainstream feminism uh, kind of views women and children as stuck in a zero sum game. I love how you phrase that because as we've already been talking about, that's exactly how, you know, basically society views women as you either have the child uh, or you don't have the child, then you can do all these other sorts of things. So why do you think it's important that feminism does support motherhood as opposed to as opposed to not? I think partly because unless we have a culture that's friendly to mothers, we won't have a culture that's friendly to women. And that includes women who are childless, whether you know, whether they intend to be or whether they have difficulties with finding a partner or infertility. And part of the reason is just that as long as women can have children, that that's viewed as dangerous in a culture that's hostile to children and to women. Every woman is, you know, poses a threat, you know, to an employer, oh, what if she gets pregnant, you know, to a partner, you know, who doesn't feel ready for that kind of commitment. You know, to someone who just says like, well, I like this fun friend, but I hope she never needs anything from me. And it's not just it's not just mothers who kind of put that pressure on people around them. Uh, you know, anyone who has a chronic illness, anyone who's taking care of an aging parent. Whenever we have other people who are dependent on us, whenever we have things that disrupt our lives physically, we kind of find out how sharp edged our society is and how intolerant it is of need. Now, mothers experience this frequently and kind of can expect to wind up in this difficult position, but lots of us find ourselves there unexpectedly when something goes wrong in our life, when someone we love is in trouble. And so a culture that welcomes women has to welcome mothers. Another discussion that you had on your Substack is that um, kind of talking more about the raw and real aspect of being a mother and that, uh, you know, how most parents parenting books talk about uh, babies and children in in the mind frame that they're manageable. Uh, but I really like that you mentioned several authors that don't and kind of giving that raw, realistic aspect. And that's something that I really wish that someone would have mentioned to me before having children, because I think that motherhood was always framed in those sorts of terms about basically how to 
manage them, how to train them and, and basically organize your day so that you can do things and be productive, those sorts of things, you know, where, whether it's sleep training, all, all those sorts of things. And I really like that quote that you pulled from the playwright Sarah Rule and her essay collection uh, about children annihilating her. Yeah, she had <laughs> um, twins. So- she had twins, and she talks about this moment where you know she's holding one. And I think the other one is vomiting on her leg, right? Yes. <laughs> and she said, "I felt like my children were annihilating me." And then I thought, "Let me be annihilated." The old self was a fiction anyway, and I think. It's really true that we can't hold on to exactly who we were before children and expect that to be our life afterwards. We can't accept a society that says, okay, well, you've had a child, but it's your job as a mom to make sure that it's possible for everyone to ignore that you've had a child. It'd be very rude if your child changed anything about your life or caused anyone else's life to change. A good mother pretends she isn't one unless she's showing a cute photo occasionally, right? Like, it's crazy. That'd be the same way for me to be married. You're married, but we want you to remember that no one wants the existence of your husband to be acknowledged or alter your life in any way. What? So, you know, taking on commitments to people means changing to fit those commitments. And I think Mm -hmm. often, you know, babies are kind of an acid test for what in our society is humane, and what in our society has contempt for vulnerability. And why do you think it is an important aspect of feminism to not pretend that babies are manageable and instead they make us more selfless? Because I know that there a lot of people, women included, really resist the concept of being a feminist. And in my opinion, and from what I've been reading on your discussions, your subsex d- discussions, is that feminism really uh, promotes mothers. And and just as we've been talking about it, it makes it so that when you do become a mother, it forces society to recognize that you have to adapt to having a child instead of just pretending like that they don't exist. So I guess what, why do you think that it's important that motherhood um, and feminism go together in, in that aspect. I think because at its heart, feminism is telling the truth about women and you know, demanding culture accept women as women. And motherhood is part of being a woman, even for you know, even for women who aren't themselves mothers, you know, who carry that potential with them and who may find different ways of expressing some of the love of a mother, whether by being a godparent to someone else, being an aunt, being a mentor that there has to be room for both the gifts women have particularly and the real struggles we face as women. I love that so much. And (laughs) just a little example, just this morning, uh, my son, who's barely three months old, he just wanted to be held all morning. And that's something that the books say that never happens, right? If you're sticking to a schedule or whatnot, that you'll always be able to do everything. And there's some mornings where I just sit on the couch or just walk around the house bouncing him all morning. And I'm just thinking, well, this is, you know, this is what I'm doing this morning because this is what he needs right now. And and that's something that that books and I guess society would really tell you that that I was being useless, I guess. But now that I've been thinking about it more, thinking, no, this is what my baby needs now. And so I'm just adapting to it. Maybe he, I don't know, is going through a growth spurt. Maybe he's in pain from growing so fast because he's such a large child. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think there's also a really good witness there that not everything in our life is this meritocratic striving, right? 
that, mm. you know, it's enough to hold your baby. You don't need to hold him for the whole morning going, I'm holding him really well. This holding of my baby, <laughs> you know, this is like in the top 10 percentile of being comforting. Just like, you know, no one is like, wow, my baby has vomited all over me, but I've been vomited on in a really exceptional way. <laughs> Sometimes what people need from us isn't being exceptional, it's just being. And again, I think mothers are forced to get really in touch with that fact. Your baby doesn't care if you're excellent. They just care that you are. And hopefully that makes Mm. a little more room in the other parts of our life and for people who aren't mothers to say, you know, sometimes it's not about what I achieve. It's just about the dignity of my being. And sometimes people are happy to be with me because I am, not because Mm. I am excellent. And if I... got a concussion and I weren't as smart as I was, or I broke my leg and I weren't as fast as I was, I wouldn't stop being worthwhile. And there wouldn't be nothing I could do that would give pleasure to other people or make them happy to be my friend. That's the perfect segue into uh, discussing valuing care work, which you also discuss um, in your Substack group. And just as we were talking about, uh, how do you give value to something? And sometimes it's just that being and not necessarily what you're doing. Uh, I really like how you were discussing how stay-at-home moms are undervalued and often looked at negatively, and then also unpaid caregivers. So what are your thoughts on how we should value care work? Because I I know that one of your readers actually um, said this quote, and I'm just going to repeat it because I I really liked what they said, uh, that Uh, being a stay-at-home mom or being a a caregiver, even to the elderly, is viewed from a sympathetic lens at best to a hostile one at its worst. And I I really don't like how there is so much negativity surrounding stay-at-home moms. And and I guess because society just always thinks that every person should always be being productive or furthering their career and those sorts of things, the fact that a stay-at-home mom is not doing any of those things and just basically being for her children, that people really look down on it and, and don't really respect that. So why do you think that that's really important that we do value the care work? And how do you think that, that we should value it? Yeah, you know, I think you can, you can hear kind of just in what you've said, how important it is simply for the stay-at-home moms and stay-at-home parents broadly, who are doing important work every day um, and should be valued simply for that basis. Yeah, they should be valued because children are good and parenting is good. And it's a real symptom of how twisted our society has become in itself that you have to kind of go, it's good to take care of a child. A baby (laughs) likes to see his mother. And that's valuable, even though the baby is not paying his mother to nurse him. And yet a valuable thing is happening. You know, there are people where it feels like, You'd have to hand the baby a little stack of money and then like take the money from the baby. And now it's worthwhile, right? Um, <laughs> it's insane. It's it's hard. It's so insane. It's hard to figure out how to unpick that for people who get stuck there. But I, th- I think the broader mm-hmm. thing is, you know, not only that stay at home work is valuable, which it is, but that our lives don't derive their value exclusively or even primarily from our jobs. You know, because if you take the position, oh, well, stay-at-home parenting is basically valueless. You know, you're not being productive at home. You're just being a parent, which doesn't count. You're productive at your job. Well, then the parent who goes to work and comes home, you know, around dinner time, have they ceased to do anything of value once they get home? You know, would it be good if we're like, okay, like I've got good news for you, 
dad. Like you're not a stay-at-home dad. That's good already. But you are you know, frittering away all this time with your family and your wife. But I've found someone who can come for money to sit at the table so that your seat is full so you can work more. And this way your family will still have someone there and you'll be productive more instead of wasting time. So isn't this a step up? You know, it's the same logic that's applied to stay-at-home parents. It just sounds a little crazier when we apply it, you know, to taking it one step further. But of course, the dad is doing something valuable when he gets home. And of course, by extension, his wife has been doing something valuable all day long. Mm-hmm. It's, it's crazy how really value, when you think about it, is it just is dependent on how you place importance on something. Um, I, I guess one thing that comes to mind is kind of completely different is the Bitcoin. I know that a few years ago was completely worthless, but then now a lot of companies have been trying to make it valuable by uh, being able to purchase things with the Bitcoin and those sorts of things. And I, I don't know why that kind of comes to mind when we're talking about stay-at-home moms. It's, it's like, oh, well, if no one thinks it's valuable, then it isn't valuable. But if we put a lot of effort into making it seem valuable and that maybe you can purchase things with it, (laughs) then suddenly valuable. Yeah, I think the equilibrium I want to land on is more that we apply a market logic to fewer things and ask fewer things to kind of justify themselves through these kind of transactions, not we found a way to put a price on nursing. Like, I really right. don't want to hear it, to be honest. I'm in, I'm in favor of some economic support for parents, but I don't want it framed as you nursed for 20 minutes on that side, and that is worth $16. It's, it's just clearly right. untrue. Right. I do like that, that that point that you made that, you know, how would we value it if we didn't put an economic value on it. And, and that is a good question. I, I don't really know the answer to that. How, how do you value something if it's not in terms of, of money? Um, it, I guess money just helps because mo- most people understand its value. So when you make that kind of comparison, then it makes sense. But then obviously, you know, we don't want to put a value on a lot of things and being a mother because it's, it's priceless. I know it's kind of cheesy, but it's, it's pretty much priceless. So, yeah, I think, you know, it's good to separate what support do parents need in justice and that that might come in the form of money and how do we Mm -hmm. value parenting, which is not primarily going to be expressed through money. So there may well, there've been some discussions about child allowances as a matter of public policy, and I'm in favor of it. But I don't think that's the main language we can use to express that parenting is valuable. But I think we can say, in justice, parents deserve this support because you know, they provide for the whole society by having more people. Uh, but that's not, <laughs> that's not how we express that they're valuable. Exactly. I know I just had that thought the other day when I was uh, – really struggling in the first few months postpartum, just, you know, with the second child. And I was just thinking, I can't believe this is how all of humanity has carried on just all this suffering and all this work. And it's so raw and gritty and uh, so much pain too. And this is basically what all of society hinges in, in, in order for it to be able to continue. All of society hinges on this very moment. And I just, I couldn't even really fathom that that and then that people kind of overlook it or brush it off and, and don't really talk about it that much. That to me is just it's mind blowing to think about that. But give yourself some of the credit you deserve here. Most of human history has not happened in this way. You know, most parents are not 
you know, spending their first three months with their baby during a global pandemic with much less ability to have a friend come over and sit with their baby. And most people mm-hmm. throughout human history don't live in nuclear families with only the parents kind of on task, especially in the early months of no sleep. You know, people have ants come stay in or already have someone living nearby. And parents don't do things as much in isolation or with the idea that my one family supports all of our own needs all the time. There's much more of a, I think of it as a sloshing of like need and gift, right? Of, oh, you know, my neighbor down the street has a newborn. So we're even having her kids over during the day so she can rest. And now I have a newborn and she's pitching in for me. There's much more of offering your excess to someone else and receiving it in return and not what do I need to do so that my family can handle anything at any time by ourselves? Right, right. No, that's a really important point to make. Uh, it's, I just actually did a podcast episode on the history of motherhood. And that's something we touched on was allo parenting, even in the hunter gatherer age, so that mothers could go work and do other things or, or, you know, just a supplement if a mom couldn't go out and work. Uh, and that was just crazy to think that it's been happening for so long. But then now in the modern era, we've kind of backpedaled and made it more difficult and harder on ourselves because then we just kind of exist in a little bubble. (laughs) And women feel like they take the blame, right? Instead of things have gotten meaningfully harder in some senses, and I don't have the resources people have almost always parented with, they go, well, I must not be working hard enough. Or if I feel tired or stressed, it must be because I'm not willing to sacrifice enough or I don't love my kids enough. And that's not what's happening. You're being asked to do something hard without the supports that historically almost all parents have relied on. That's true. That's true. I guess for me, it probably, it seems harder for me because I don't think I could have survived <laughs> not in the era of modern medicine, mostly just because of our all of the pelvic conditions that I've had. So for me, it's more of like a pain. But just as you said, I'm sure that if I was able to rest more, I probably wouldn't be in so much pain, which I never really thought about. And I don't think I don't think people can flim flam us into, well, look, like you don't get to complain about bad societal developments if you like antibiotics. (laughs) I'm like, I don't see any reason why accepting antibiotics means that parents have to work alone all this time. (laughs) It's so true. Yeah, I know. I guess in some ways, our life is easier. And in a lot of ways that we've made it more difficult, which is ironic. So (laughs) and I think we celebrate the good. But that's again, where feminism comes back in that real suspicion of a culture that tells us, look, when things are hard for women, that's just too bad. That's an unfixable problem. And it's mostly a problem about the fact that you're women. Right, that it's biological and that biology is why you're having problems. And that basically. women are inconvenient in some way, right? That like, is if we could just have only men, this would run smoothly because we've built it around men's needs and men's habits. Uh, and if you would just try to be a little less a woman, you'd find it would all go much more smoothly <laughs> for us. Exactly. <laughs> I'd love to switch gears now to talk about uh, your favorite representations of women and then also women that you admire. I know in your discussions that there those were two separate points, uh, but I'm just going to kind of lump them in together just for the time's sake, since I'm trying to fit everything in a one hour podcast. <laughs> and But this is a very multifaceted, uh, you know, topic uh, that we could spend hours on. So I know that... Um, you included a photo in one of your emails that I really liked from the photographer, Grace Elizabeth. And she has this gold dust series of portraits where she uses gold paint to highlight C-section scars and stretch marks. And I really liked that um, because as you noted that 
uh, it makes the mending beautiful instead of invisible. And that to me just, I brought really warm feelings to me. I thought, oh, that's just so nice because, uh, you know, no one really shows the the healing process. It's just, oh, look at my post baby body. Look at how I recovered and look at how great it is now instead of focusing on the wounds and the scars or the process to get there. So that was my favorite representation of every representation of everything that, that you had shared. But I'd love to hear what are some of your favorite representations of um, not even just the postpartum period, but just of women in general. Um, uh, what what are some of your favorite representations of women in the in, um, with having feminism in mind? Uh, you know, I've always loved the books of Louisa May Alcott. You know, and she really blends you know, women who take pleasure in being women, who are also strong, um, who push back against expectations of them that are rooted in untruth, right? You know, that, you know, there are times when they'll say women can't and it's untrue. And then there are times when they say women, you know, need to be able to and that's untrue also, like unfair demands, unfair restrictions. Um, but there's a real sense of a way that beauty and strength go together, not in the sense you see on, magazines, but just in a sense of being well-suited for the task you've taken on is beautiful. She talks about a sculptor, you know, making a woman, you know, and some discussion of like how she balances, you know, the implements of her work and the, you know, holding a child. But the idea that a strong arm is a better arm, both for work and for picking up a baby, but there's a particular kind of strength. And we think about like what a woman's body looks like, you know, it's not necessarily the strength of a, a bodybuilder that it's very uncomfortable to imagine resting your head against all those knobbly bits, right? Um, right. But, but in all the work we do, there's a real strength and it's reflected in our bodies. Um, and it has a, gives us a particular shape. It varies from person to person, but it's a really distinct strength. You know, I'm sure you're feeling right now just the constant you know, bicep of lifting <laughs> a baby yeah. up and down out of a crib. And that mm-hmm. our bodies tell the story of all the work we've done and that that mm-hmm. work done faithfully and well is what makes us beautiful. Mm, I love that. That's so beautiful. What about uh, women that you admire? Are there any particular women that you feel really embody the feminism spirit? And uh, I don't know if, if you have an example of one that's also a mother, but it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a mother, but just a woman um, who you admire. One woman who's both a woman and a writer I admire a lot is Erica Bakioki, who uh, writes in a very beautiful way about this kind of different feminism or you know, a different road feminism could be taking right now of honoring women as women um, and really being attentive to where the culture around us asks us to make a false choice to say, look, like we can... We can let you in, but only if you don't have that baby you're carrying, right? You know, these these senses that doors close for women in various ways. And then it's called empowering. Like you can be part of culture, but we need that shirt to be a little bit lower. So we know you're not a prude, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and I think she does a really good job talking about how our culture just forces false choices on women and then expects us Mm -hmm. to reconcile the tensions ourselves, Um, in my own life, I admire my mother a great deal, who is a college professor, um, you know, a teacher, and just always was interested in what we did and is always interested in the – I think in some ways, you know, my parents are big, you know, into politics and into activism. They were taking me you know, to protest marches while I was in utero. Oh, wow. And so I think to an extent, one of the things I took from that is that, you know, we're not alone 
right? That when I read something, when I think something, my parents always kind of pose the question, my mom particularly, what does this imply about the world? And what does this imply about what we have to do next? There's no, here we are in our family and in our house and the walls are all closed and that's the end of it. Everything they gave me, I was expected to go out and do something with. And I think, again, that points mm. to who are women? We're people who have kind of fuzzy boundaries, right? You know, you you have a baby who's part of our body, but is a different person for nine months and they come out and they don't totally feel like a different person. You know, they feel like they belong right next to you as though you're still almost one person. I think being a mom kind of right. tells the truth a little bit, which is, you know, we're not mm -hmm. totally distinct or cut off from other people ever. We can pretend to be, mm -hmm. people can demand that we pretend to be, but we have duties to each other and we have relationships to each other. We don't start as a radically alone individual. Mm, that's so beautiful. I've never even thought of that or heard of that before. I, I love that. That's actually a perfect answer to transition to our last point, which is about raising feminists. I have I asked a few friends what they would like to hear discussed on the topic of raising feminists, and I'll throw out a few of them. Uh, but feel free to just basically um, talk about what you think the most important parts of raising feminists is. I know some mentioned body positivity, since there's a lot of pressure on women or girls as they're growing into women on their bodies, uh, boundaries and consent, and also an interesting topic that. I've been thinking about now that I have a son is raising boys to be feminists. And how do you sort of, uh, you know, tell your son that he's not better than women or, you know, better than girls. Um, I know there's a lot of phrases that, that tend to kind of reinforce that idea too. It says there's, you know, Oh, don't be a girl or you run like a girl, those sorts of things. So what are your thoughts on, on how to raise uh, feminists? Yeah. You know, I think one thing that goes for children of both genders is just one of the parenting things I've really liked is praising children for what they do, you know, not just who they not making it about who they are as much. So it's not, oh, you did all your homework. Like you must be really smart. I'm proud of how smart you are. Oh, you've done this homework. You know, I'm proud of the work you've put in. Uh, did you have trouble with any of them? Which ones? Oh, did you sit with that for a while? Oh, you got this wrong. Oh, well, you know, how are you going to fix it? Of just, making it normal for children not to be good at everything uh, and for them to be comfortable with that. So that, first of all, they don't have contempt for other people who aren't as smart or aren't as fast or aren't as tall as they are, which is, isn't technically a moral category, but I think especially for young kids, it feels like one for a little bit. Yeah. Um, but so that they also are interested to push the boundaries of what they can do. They're comfortable with struggling a little and finding that exciting rather than, this is proof I'm not good at it, right? And I think, again, women mm. are particularly likely to hear that message of, you know, you're in a math class, you sit and struggle with the problem for a bit. Well, I'm, I'm not good at math. When mm. mathematics is the process of sitting with a mathematical question and struggling with it for a bit, you know, mathematicians don't do everything easily. They just have harder problems they sit and struggle with. Oh, interesting. I hadn't ever heard about that for math either. I like that. I'm gonna have to remember that. Yeah, you know, math. So what are you mathematicians aren't sitting there with homework, someone's assigned them and just like going through their times tables really fast. They sit with something that's hard. <laughs> and then they like keep working on it, like storm off, come back, you know, just like kids yeah. do with their homework for a bit. Yeah, I guess you always see it in movies. And I don't know how accurate this is of just mathematicians or scientists at the chalkboard and 
pondering and scribbling little answers as they think of it or something like that. So that, I, that kind of fits that definition. So what are, what are you going to tell your daughter as you as you raise her? How, how old is your daughter now? She's one. So you know, I can only tell her okay. so many things. She identified a bird yeah. as woof woof this morning. So <laughs> oh, That's so cute. But I think a big so what, what are you thinking of telling her as she gets older? Well, a big part of what I want to do is show her a lot of different portraits of women. You know, I think one of the things that really strikes me is that when I walk through a city and I look at the ads, it can often feel like I see only one woman with minor variations. Right. And one of the right. women on my Substack, you know, wrote in about how a woman she really valued meeting was just a woman who was much older than she was. And it wasn't until she saw her that she's like, wow. I can't picture myself being older because I know no women who are older. I can't think about who I want to grow up to be because I only see you know, marketable women, right? Um, in that mm, sense. Interesting. And that's so interesting. I was, yeah, I was just talking with my husband yesterday how I grew up in Southern California and I, I basically like the stereotypical Southern California girl is just, you know, blonde and super skinny, dressed a certain way. And I was just talking to my husband about that and I just, I don't know. I mean, I could have just, I guess, succumbed to that and just dress like everyone else and try to look like everyone else. But in my head, I I kind of wanted to be a little bit different and not different in a bad sense. But I just, I don't know. I just didn't want to be like putting on that uniform. I, I wanted to be my own person. Absolutely. And you know, I think that's the thing. As a parent, I don't know exactly what kind of person Beatrice's own person will turn out to be, but I want her to have a good compass for navigating that and not getting drawn into these shallow images or restrictive models. I, mm-hmm. As a Catholic, you know, I find the examples of the saints helpful because they're very different. And it's a bunch of women who are all held up as admirable, who you know are virgin martyrs or the mothers of big families or... You know, in Joan of Arc's case, a surprise military leader. But it really reminds you there are a lot of ways to be a woman that, depending mm. on the particular gifts you have and the situation you're in, are the right one. It's not that you pick one other woman and say, I'm going to be her. You say, how did she know what kind of woman she was being called to be? And how do I imitate mm. that attentiveness? Mm, I like that. You know, growing up, that that is something that's a really good point that isn't really emphasized in society at all is I never felt like I was free in terms of what society pressures um, were put on me of finding who I wanted to be as a woman. It's just more of everyone fitting that certain model, you know, whether it's how everyone around you looks and dresses or what, what the media is telling you, what magazines are Mm -hmm. telling you, uh, what, what movie characters are telling you, what popular TV show characters are telling you. And and I, I do remember feeling that pressure growing up, thinking that I had to be, you know, fit into one of those boxes, whether it's the funny lady or like the more prim and proper lady or the sporty lady, you know, what, what kind of woman are you going to be? But I, I really like that, that aspect as well. So I think the, the real challenge for me is that I want my daughter to be bold about you know, pushing back in some of the things we've been talking about against a world that tells her, you know, you're allowed in the world insofar as you don't make your being a woman a problem for anyone else. But I also don't want her to relate primarily to being a woman as something that, you know, is all about defying people or have you know a chip on her right. shoulder. And sometimes I slip into that mode. I'm like, well, I feel best yeah. about being a woman when I am like shoving someone out of my way who tells me I can't. And I want to make sure she feels good about being a woman when nothing bad is happening. 
<laughs> right. I can relate to that. That kind of reminds me of um, both times when I'm pregnant, I definitely pulled the pregnancy card with each pregnancy, but it's because someone had really wronged me. And I thought, yes, this is when I can totally 100% pull the pregnancy card. I remember uh, when I was pregnant with my daughter, I was uh, practicing litigation. And so I was in court a lot. And um, one attorney was just lying. And I don't know if they were doing it on purpose or maybe they didn't have all the information. So I thought that they were lying, but they were, they were saying all these statements about me that were completely untrue. And I had like this whole email exchange with them and they were basically what I had said in emails, they were saying that I didn't say. And so I, I knew I was in the right in this instance. And so basically I just told this other attorney, I was like, how dare you accuse a pregnant lady of lying? You know, and I just, and I don't know why that that felt so great. And I don't think she knew that I was pregnant because, um, I, I don't know, I, cause I was wearing a suit or maybe I wasn't like super showing. It's like, oh, I am so sorry. And then, and then miraculously she remembered everything that I had said before mm-hmm. and she wasn't <laughs> trying to pull one over me, but I, I don't know. I just share that story because I, I don't know why I was like, yes, I can finally pull the card. <laughs> this feels great. So. Yeah, I think I think it's the tricky balance between it's good to stand up for what's right and it's bad to be excited when someone disappoints you. You know, that you can right. feel the sense <laughs> of like, oh, I don't I don't really trust this person. Oh, they've mistreated me. Now I know I'm in the right. And now I get to yell at them, right? And C.S. Lewis yeah, talks about this. Hormones or something. Well, it's, C.S. Lewis talks about it. It's something you know, that happens to men too, right? It's just this sense of you have to want good things for your enemies, including for them to surprise you with their compassion or understanding. And if you feel disappointed when they turn out to be better than you expected them to be, something's gone wrong for you. So that's, that's what I exactly. struggle with for myself. And I want my daughter to be better than I am about this really mm-hmm. ready to defend herself when she's being wronged, but without being kind of, you know, straining at the bit, excited, like, am I going to get to stand up for myself? Am I going to get to tell this person <laughs> that they're wrong? Right, right. I, th- I think for me, I don't know, it's probably a combination of hormones. But then also, I was just shocked when I started litigation, because I always assume the best of everyone. And then I was surprised that I had to kind of flip my mentality of just assuming the worst of everyone. And then I, I struggled initially on on defending myself. And so that was kind of a moment where I was like, yes, this is like, I know 100%, like, I'll, I'll get them with this argument. <laughs> so I don't know, it's just kind of funny to remember or to think about. Um, I'd love to ask you in closing a question that we ask every single mom that's on our show. And that's uh, in line with our motto that there's no way to be a perfect mom but uh, many ways to be a good one instead. And I feel like we've probably already answered this uh, several times indirectly, but I'd love to hear maybe of an example of maybe an example, a particular example comes to mind in your life of when you kind of realize that for yourself. Well, you know, I think one thing was that right after I had Beatrice, as I said, I had a C-section. So, you know, my husband did all the picking her up for the first two weeks um, because it was tough for me and we wanted to focus on me getting better. But that meant that when she was crying, I couldn't get up and go get her in the way that you picture a mom doing. And sometimes what I would do is that while Alexi was you know, taking care of her and I wasn't, I would just sing to her so that I was doing something for her, even if it wasn't the exact thing I wished I were able to do or that she might want me to do. And I think a lot of being a mom is that, that you know, we hope we're equal to the task. There's no real guarantee that we're always exactly what our children need, even what they truly need. Um, 
when they can get into trouble, that's bigger than what we can get them out of. But we can do is love them and offer whatever we have. Mm -hmm. And so I guess in some ways I got to practice that very early. And I don't think it'll be the last time. Mm, That's so beautiful. I love that so much. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I've really enjoyed our discussion and I've learned so much too, just in different ways of thinking and framing the idea of feminism. So thank you so much for coming on and speaking with all of us. My pleasure. I'm really glad you host this podcast. Thank you. (laughs) 